and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we delve into the issue of big tech and privacy with a bipartisan group of attorneys general across the nation announcing an antitrust investigation against Google. What does this mean for companies like Facebook, Amazon, and others if the federal government steps in to regulate? Will that stifle competition, or are these companies so large that they've already pushed out competitors. It's complex, but fortunately, we have Rosalind Layton to break it down for us today. Rosalind Layton is a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where she focuses on evidence-based policy for information, communications, and digital technology industries. Using empirical methods, she assesses regulations and policies for digitally connected domains such as mobile wireless, telecom, cable, internet, among others. Dr. Layton is also a visiting researcher at Alborg University in Copenhagen, Denmark, and is a vice president at Strand Consult. Rosalind, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm thrilled to join you, Beverly. Thank you so much. And I think technology is a wonderful thing. You are a tech guru. You are actually joining us today from Copenhagen. I know it's later there, so thank you so much for for joining us on this episode. But isn't technology wonderful where we can even have this conversation while we're in different countries? It's true. It, it it is. I mean, I've been able to work all over the world and and work with with people because you know the broadband is so excellent and it's getting better all the time. It's really um, it's a wonderful success story. And you know you don't know how great you have it till you you go abroad actually. And um, but in any case, um, we are you and I today. We're using our tech mobile technologies probably. And and we're and I listen to your podcast when I'm on the go, so I love it. And I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this question, but something that I was reading your introduction, I thought of is that while you and I have worked together in the past and you're a friend of mine, I have to admit that even though I've worked with people in the tech industry, focusing on researching the policies of big tech, I don't meet many women in this industry. So you're one of the few women that I know that works in this industry. How did that come about? Why was this an interest for you? And what has it been like being a woman working in this field? It's such a great question. And I, you know, I would just say to you, to those listeners, women who want to get into tech, go for it because you know what, it's honestly being a woman is an advantage. And, um, and the other part is who uses technology is women. So, uh, but you know, in my personal story, I have, um, I have reinvented myself many times. I've had a long career doing different things. Uh, but I knew that, um, I, uh, at maybe in my thirties, I got an MBA. I knew I had to change careers. I had worked in with nonprofit organizations and I worked in a financial industry and, um, I got an MBA. I worked for Tata in India and, you know, I went back to California. I actually was, um, working in Silicon Valley. So I had a great experience. Uh, and then I was recruited to Denmark to bring my Silicon Valley skills to, um, a, a new place. And, but as I went along, you know, I was very much involved in kind of startup culture. And what I realized what was missing was the thinking is so much like, you know, make it happen. Things had to be very fast. And I thought, gee, if you could step back and think of strategy for a moment. So uh, in Denmark, there's a wonderful thing called the industrial PhD program. And that um, I went to a study business economics. I studied a very controversial issue called net neutrality. I looked at 50 countries around the world and what happened with their internet regulation before and after. 
And that was really um, uh, uh, opened my mind and my world to the policy area. And uh, I, it's made me love the American Constitution because I've learned so much about the U.S. because I've lived abroad. But what I can boil all of that down for you is that, um, you know, regulation tends to reward the largest companies because they are generally asking for regulation and they can protect their market position. And when it comes to the Internet, we have seen a lot of success with what's called multi-stakeholder or bottom-up kind of solutions where you have different stakeholders working together. And I learned that in my research where I saw that the countries that had the most heavy-handed regulation, you saw very little startup activity, very little um, disruptors. And, of course, where we've seen the um, entrenchment of the large companies were where uh, – sorry, the opposite. So where you had a multi-stakeholder model, you had a lot of um, local innovation. So, for example, here in Denmark, they manage the net neutrality issue through self-regulation. And most of the Nordic countries, they've been very innovative, making local innovation – um, but, but in cases where they had a heavy handed approach, you don't find, you know, what's interesting is we were told we needed to regulate the internet, but no one else has been able to come up with, um, the other Google or something on Facebook, except in China where there are no rules at all for net neutrality. So, so in any case, my PhD was really, um, it, it pushed back against a lot of conventional wisdom. And so I take that approach very much because we have everyone in Washington, they all want to regulate their competitors. And when the largest companies come in and say, oh, please regulate us, then you really have to have some concerns. Well, obviously, because they have a vested interest in that. And I, I do want to get into that uh, more, but I want to take a step back. I think often this world of big tech can, it's a lot to sift through if you don't deal with it day in and day out. We know that there is uh, something significant going on because fate. 50 state attorneys general are making an investigation into Google across this issue, the issue of privacy. But can you take us a step back and say, okay, when it comes to privacy, what is it that people are referring to? What are the concerns? Well, that's a great question, Beverly. I'm really glad you asked that because when we, when you, if you listen to the debates or what you read on the news, they are jumbling a lot of terms together. They'll say data privacy, data protection, data security, Every single one of those terms has a very different meaning and extremely different legal implications. And they all get thrown around and they're not the same thing. And so to, just to put this in perspective, in Europe, this giant new regulation called the General Data Protection Regulation, it, the word privacy is not in that text. With all the, all the, the words in it, there's nothing about privacy. It is about regulating the conduct of business. It's about regulating information. It has nothing to do with privacy. Now, privacy in the United States actually has a very long history, over 200 years, going back to before the founding. And the, the first laws that were adopted in the United States had to do with protecting people from the government. So the, how the census was conducted, protecting the post, making sure that you know, your, your mail wasn't read, um, uh, laws about people eavesdropping on you. So actually, the, the privacy tradition in the United States is very strong, largely about the administrative state. In our laws in the U.S., we have over two dozen laws regulating privacy with regard to business, different industries. That goes back to the 70s and where, where people had a lot of financial information. Uh, we have a lot of activity. You know, people bought, uh, had credit, the early days of credit, and 
and when it was time to move that away from punch cards and so on onto computers, it was necessary to make a kind of framework. So the interesting thing is, in terms about the protection of data and how it's uh, uh, treated, the United States has a long tradition of doing that. Um, but what we did was evolve a what you would call a trust-based or risk-based approach where we didn't do what the Europeans do, which says every single thing needs to be regulated by the state. We said, let's evolve this based upon where the need is necessary, financial information, health information, children and information. So that's been important for the permissionless innovation we have in our country because we didn't assume that just because you collect personal information that it's, it's a problematic. So we have allowed firms to emerge. That's been vital for the internet. And so now we're at a point, in fact, we've been there for 20 years. It's just Congress keeps, um, you know, it becomes difficult to, to make the deal or what have you. But we know that now we have to do something about the digital space. And, and can I jump in really, here and a question on yes. that? So when we, if we yes. want to think about privacy, should we say, okay, privacy, first of all, is about people and how people are treated in relation to the companies that they opt in to use. So let's use Facebook. That's an easy example. And Facebook should adhere to their policies on how people's data is being used. That's when they get into trouble is when they sell it to a third party without your consent, therefore breaking the privacy policy that they have with you. So that is very separate than what's going on with the competition and the regulation, correct? Right. So, yes, I appreciate that you, you highlight that because that's already covered. So we have the Federal Trade Commission, which just fined Facebook $5 billion. It's huge fine. But that was for what's called a violation. We have rules about um, unfair and deceptive practices. So take privacy off the table. If you make a contract with a person or a terms of agreement and you do not represent what you're going to do or you do the opposite or you don't disclose, that is an unfair or deceptive practice. So you don't have to make new laws to address that. And, and so that has, been, um, that has been there. Now, the issue, there were other issues with Facebook because they had a previous consent decree with the Federal Trade Commission. So the question was, did they violate it? And that, of course, enables the FTC to make the kinds of uh, investigation and fines that they did. So that is one issue. Unfair and deceptive practices, we have a 100-year tradition on that. It's very important in American law and, and jurisprudence and so forth. Um, the... Um, but the other issue is now, um, uh, can you say the second part? I'm sorry, the, what's the separate Well, issue? just let's now get into what, yeah, what, what are we now getting into when it comes to regulate the companies any further? We, like you were saying right. earlier, a lot of these terms right. get used in different ways and they have very specific right. meanings and people I think are careless in how they use it. What's being talked about right now when it comes to the attorneys general is not about the privacy of people. It's how do we regulate these companies, correct? Right. So- I will be honest with you. When I I have um, I'm still trying to get a copy of the you know the materials, but I've watched the the 50 uh, attorney generals stood on the steps of the Supreme Court, and and um, were each one of them had kind of different reasons. So there's not a specific reason, and they're not even describing it. But what is significant is not since really the tobacco kind of um, litigation have we had attorneys general on both sides and 50 of them, all but um, California and Alabama. So also Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico's AGF joined. But they all kind of have a different beef against Google. Now, 
I would say this on their own. A lot of attorney general have tried to go after Google for things like, you know, a firm was on the um, uh, was on the Google search engine and then they fell to page three and all their business dried up. So it could that again could be a deceptive practice with Google not disclosing how their algorithm works. So the challenge here uh, is that you have a lot of antitrust action. You've got the um, Department of Justice. They have launched an investigation. You have Congress looking into it. So I would guess I would say there's a laundry list of people upset with Google. And uh, to be honest with you, I mean, a lot of us in the policy community have been trying to highlight these issues for, for years and no one would really listen. Um, and so now it's a bit after the fact and everyone, you know, we're, we're, there's a lot of things we're concerned about what's going on in China and so forth. But um, uh, the world has changed even uh, in the last decade. So, for example, do you really want to break up Google and Facebook and Amazon and then just give a gift to the large Chinese companies? You know, so, um, you know, maybe we are not happy about some of these American companies, but who do we want people in Thailand? Do we want them to use American companies or Chinese companies when they go online? So I think the issues now, there's even more at stake. It's very complex. There's also challenges because, you know, for example, Apple is putting cloud data in China where the Chinese government and military can look at it. So, so that's a concern that, you know, Google has worked with, um, uh, has done some projects with the Chinese government. That's a concern. So it's a very difficult, extremely difficult question. And in many respects, sometimes the, um, it doesn't line up to traditional antitrust analysis. So for example, consumers don't necessarily pay more out of their pocket, right? You don't pay to use a search engine. Um, but we are considering now, well, you know, do we give too much of our information? We don't know how it works. It's very opaque. The other issue is the companies are extremely innovative. So in an anti-competitive situation, innovation would be reduced, but that's not the situation now. We have a lot of innovation today. So um, I'll just wrap up on this one point to give you, uh, just to show you how complex it is, because I used to be, you know, I was working in the, this field where we worked in um, digital advertising and analytics. A lot of the attorney generals think that you, because you, your advertisement appears high, that you pay more for the advertisement. That's not necessarily the case. Some of the best advertisers, they pay very little for their keywords because they have made a quality advertisement. It's very relevant for the user's query. So in fact, the bad advertisements get penalized by paying a higher price. So it actually rewards advertisers who make quality advertising that the users click through, that they you know, resolve, that they get what they're looking for. So this, the other part of this is that uh, users get a lot of utility out of Google. Now, it's not, there's definitely concerns, you know, with the operating system, there's concerns about business practices with the vertical integration and so on. But it doesn't always match up to what the traditional antitrust analysis would look for. And that's why I think it's good that even as we're thinking about, okay, what leads to innovation, what increases competition, 
we can actually look to Europe and some of the rules you called them, I think they're known as GDPR is what they're known as. There's some of the privacy rules that they instituted. Of course, they deal with privacy differently um, outside of America. But what have you found when it comes to the small or medium-sized firms that are trying to grow in comparison to these larger companies? Because like you were saying, these large companies tend to want these types of regulations because it benefits them somehow, correct? Right. Exactly. Well, as I told you in my PhD, when I studied this net neutrality policy, all the countries that adopted the hard rules, Google, Apple, Facebook, all the big American companies increased their traffic and revenue in those countries. And it's not surprising, of course, they've always been asking for, well, please regulate the internet in our favor. Um, but what, um, what we've seen in Europe, and it's not just this latest policy of GDPR, it's been the last, it's been the history of the EU, is that they've always felt that they could manage innovation from the desk of the bureaucrat, right? So they thought, well, we will, we will, we didn't like Google, so the government will fund our own search engine and it will, you know, and, and two, you know, France and Germany tried to create a competitor to Google and didn't fly because there's something about, you know, you, every single day you have to have a, the test of the users and do they like your service or not? And you have to respond to the marketplace. So the European attempts to make innovation to compete with Silicon Valley have not really been successful. There's other barriers within the European Union. Americans forget that we, our whole nation was founded on being a single market. We have a common language and currency. We have interstate commerce. And the European Union is still trying to, to, to resolve that. They have, you know, 17 currencies and 24 languages. And it's, and, and so even with all the regulations they make to try to make it a single a place, it still doesn't work. And that has a lot to do with restrictive regulations that say you have to treat every single piece of information as if it is, um, as if it is a piece of property that it has to be, um, if we don't care whether it's sensitive or not, whether it's valuable or not. So you don't get a lot of risk taking, um, the sad thing about the EU would be in the last, you know, you haven't seen small and medium-sized companies grow. They are um, that, so when, and, but what was the amazing thing with this GDPR is they promised that policymakers said, oh, we're going to go after the American companies and we'll see a level playing field, a new, um, e new European innovation will come. That hasn't happened. A year later, American companies, Google, Facebook, Amazon, they have more market share today than they did a year ago because the cost of the GDPR, it's several million dollars to upgrade the systems, to hire all the people, to do all the reporting and so on. So small competitors, small advertising competitors have exited the market. They have closed down. They stopped serving the EU. To put in perspective, 1,000 media from the United States, they no longer serve the European Union. From my desk in Copenhagen, I cannot get the Chicago Tribune. It just doesn't, uh, it, it, they decided they're not going to make their site available in Europe because the regulations are so onerous. Now, if you try to do that in America, it would violate our First Amendment, free speech, where the government is essentially regulating speech. So, so this is really the, what the lesson is, is that you have to be careful with the regulations you adopt because you end up rewarding the largest players. So for example, Microsoft, they're around the world saying, oh, we have to make GDPR everywhere. Well, of course, because they're already compliant and they don't want any other, they don't want new software company to challenge them on that because they have the market position. 
And I want to talk a little bit of just about our elected officials that have to make decisions on this. Um, I find that whether somebody is Republican or Democrat, they're looking at big tech and trying to figure out what is a solution and what do we do about some of these issues that we're coming across. And I'm curious from you as somebody who's testified on the Hill, both in the House and the Senate, what has it been like educating members of Congress on the issues of big tech. Like you were saying, it's such a complex issue and they are there being um, approached with different ideas on how to deal with it. Are they really taking the time to research this as much as possible? And of course they have different expertise, different members of Congress, but I just find in some ways it's kind of ironic that members of government are, are making these decisions when it's very much outside of most of their wheel of expertise. It's very different than traditional policies that they're used to. Yeah. Well, that's a great point, Beverly. Well, first of all, I'd say is the media will definitely like to highlight the conflicts in Congress between the parties. And of course, that's, you know, part of their stick to do that. But personally, I find it very gratifying to work on this issue because there's a lot of bipartisanship. And just given that privacy is something everybody cares about, they understand what's at stake. Uh, um, and I'm very heartened because I think uh, honestly, all of the, the 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 testimony that I've prepared, the the representatives, the senators, they have asked extremely insightful questions, and their staff people, they're very um, up, they're they're very knowledgeable. They ask very good questions, and personally, I'm okay that they have been deliberate about it. And in fact, I find it's the most encouraging thing of everything. And I'm much more encouraged by Congress than the AGs, for example, because they are more measured and what they look at, and they know what's at stake. I think that it surprised a lot of people that the GDPR has not been this nirvana that they expected, and they're very concerned if they adopt regulation, it's gonna hurt small business. Um, we have literally millions of, of, of um, small startups in the United States. Last year, 40,000 new internet startups going, and then just add that, you know, over the, the two decades that we've had. So they're very concerned about what they adopt. Now, that being said, and you would know this, Beverly, is there's a lot of cowboy, you know, I don't know what you'd call them, renegades in California who somehow they want to do their own kind of GDPR. And it's, they passed a law that will be coming in place in, Janu in January. And that is very destructive. It is, it's essentially a grab bag. It came together in a week. And it, um, now we really have to do something because California being a large state and so many uh, American companies are selling into California that it can, in many ways, set the tone for the whole country. So it's really important that Congress does kind of bring the country back to its senses and look at and make a, you know, the proper framework for, for Internet, uh, uh, what you would call information privacy because if we don't want to go with what California is doing, it is disastrous. Already, the minimum cost to comply with the whole laundry list of what the California legislature wants is a, it's a minimum of $100,000. And that's, what, that's more than companies will spend on the entire IT budget. So, so I'm, you know, many of us are very concerned about California, especially because of what we've seen in, in Europe. And, it, and so we don't want that to happen to the rest of the internet economy. So it is a big deal. 
And so when you talk about internet privacy, so the, this angle, is there something that we need to change legislatively to ensure that that remains or would it just be keeping status quo? So just kind of finally in wrapping up, what should we be looking towards Congress? What, what should they be doing or not doing as a whole? Right. Well, the most important thing is Congress can preempt California. So it can, it can create a national law, which it should because it's interstate commerce, that the California, uh, it will preempt what California is trying to do. And as you know, we have certain areas of our constitution where we have a federal policy that will supersede the state policy. So that's very important so that we don't destroy the internet economy for the rest of America. Uh, that is that is one area. Um, but the other, uh, the other thing is we have um, an excellent organization called the National Institutes of Standard and Technology. And the, the, the actual technology of privacy is codified and certified standards. There are actually standards that, that are written down that are, um, uh, what would you say, uh, uh, official or certified by different standards organizations, American Institute of Standards, and, and so on, is global one, American one. And we can be able to say to the, to the various companies that you can choose your standards and then we'll give you a safe harbor to transition to them and that you can disclose which standards that you use so that people will know. And then we can be able to have an Internet economy that works with a set of standards that have been agreed to, that are, um, in, that are uh, disclosed. If you violate the standard, it's very clear, the standard's written. And that is a much better way for the companies to, or any organization, um, can figure out which amount of risk that they want to take for the users to decide. And that will be a great direction to go. Well, Rosalind, I always appreciate chatting with you because I personally learned so much. So thank you. I'm sure it's helpful of to course. all of those who are listening and for joining us when it's really late in Copenhagen. So I appreciate Anytime. you taking the call. Thank you so much. Take care. And thank you all for joining us. If you have more interest in the topic we discussed, you can, of course, follow Rosalind on Twitter. Her handle is Rosalind Layton, and that is spelled R-O-S-L-Y-N-L-A-Y-T-E-N. And, of course, you can check out IWF.org for all issues related to big tech. I also wanted to let you know about a great podcast you should subscribe to in addition to She Thinks. It's called Problematic Women, and it's hosted by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans, where they both sort through the news to bring stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is, women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. Every Thursday, hear them talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics by searching for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help, and we'd love it if you shared this episode so that your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thank you.